Hello there. I'm Osha. Wherever you are this week, I hope you are okay. This is my podcast. It's called Better Than Yesterday, and twice a week I make this show, but I do not make it alone. I work with two incredibly skilled people, people who... I don't work with those dogs. They work. They stay here for free. They never pay any rent. They're really annoying. I work with two incredibly skilled people, people who've uh, spent years honing their crafts, uh, Andy and Rachel. They help me make this show. And also Hayley, who runs the social side of things for me. I have to pay all these people because you get what you pay for and I'm able to make this podcast so as good as it is because I have very good people working with me. So to help me pay them, you might hear an ad right now. If you do, thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you don't, thank you all the same. Let's get on and chat with Scott. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, we're trying to get people 20 liters a day. Many people are using far less than that, three liters a day, five liters a day, to use for cooking, for drinking, for cleaning, for washing the clothes. Now, for us, that's two toilet flushes. So you think about how much water we use. In America, we would use about 30 times that amount every day. As we you know, sit here chatting, a tenth of the planet is drinking dirty, unsafe, contaminated water. Maybe the frustrating thing is that we know how to solve this problem. Problem. So there's not a single human being that should be drinking dirty water. It's not like plenty of diseases out there that we just don't know how to cure yet. Water is a curable disease in its entirety. So that's what Charity Water has been doing. And, you know, we've been able to now help about 11 million people get water out of the 660 million. So still so much work left to be done. That is New York Times bestselling author and the founder and CEO of Charity Water, Scott Harrison. And this is Better Than Yesterday.
Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you very, very much for being here. This show is simply a conversation designed to help you make today better than yesterday. Something that you hear in the next hour and a bit or so will make you go, all right, hmm. And then you'll apply something that you heard to the way you think about things or do things and then you go to bed tonight and go, oh, it's better than it was. Yeah, not bad. I like it. That's it. That's the show. I'm here every Monday, here every Friday. Today, my guest is Scott Harrison. You can find him online. He's at Scott Harrison everywhere you go. He's the founder and CEO of Charity Water. Now, in this time where I'm recording this in March 2020, it's late March 2020, and the COVID-19 pandemic is um, just really getting up to speed in, in our country of Australia, you'll be washing your hands 10 times a morning. Imagine what life without that clean water would look like if such a disease entered the community. Imagine, just imagine. Scott's a remarkable individual, and in this extraordinary time in history, it's super important to remember that for every obfuscating, slow-to-act, blaming other people, white man in power, there are hundreds, if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people like Scott working bloody hard to make this world a better place. Thank you all to the many, many pictures that I got this week of, of where you're listening to this show. I do appreciate ever so much to see where you're listening to the show. It's called a podsy, just a picture. Use the phone you're listening to this on right now. Take a photo of what you're doing. You're probably in work from home mode. A lot of people are. You can shoot it through to me. Send osher email at gmail.com. The work from home thing is, is kind of fun. I had a meeting with a couple of heavy hitters the other day, and it was one of those... Um, that was a Zoom meeting. I'm sure you're all, you've, everyone's got all every different kind of software on their phone and laptop by now to do these meetings. And across the top, there was four cameras of four people. Uh, the three of them were, you know, really important kind of heavy hitting people. And of the four people, uh, three of us, there was two dogs and one cat. <laughs> it was pretty fun. It was pretty fun. Thanks everybody else who um, as well reached out on email to see if I'm okay. I do appreciate that very, very much. To be honest, I am okay. Audrey, as always, is a solid keel for our family, keeping us all on course. And I'm trying every single day to accept the things that I cannot change and have the courage to change the things I can and just be aware that I can indeed only control a tiny amount of things. In the words of my legendary sponsor, David, he told me this week, that list of things is exhaustively small, but it doesn't make those things any less important. So in this time where there's very little that you and I can control, I mean, as I said to you on Friday, I can't control policy about who's going to keep a school open or closed. I can't control policy about how much who could buy at the grocery store. I can't control any of that. I can recommend to you prioritizing sleep if you can. Move your body if you can. Try to eat properly, not emotionally, if you can. Try to connect with another person on a phone call or a video chat if you can. Not just a hi, how are you? Just like a proper long chat, you know, sit the phone down, make a cup of tea together, have a chat, talk about stuff. Try to do something for someone else if you can, because that really is when you start to really shift things, not only within you, but within the community. I'll talk a bit more about that in a sec. I did get a lot of wonderful pictures this week of notes that people left in their neighbor's letterboxes their elderly neighbours. Just to let them know they're not alone. Here's a number if you need anything left on the front step. Actually, I just before I started recording this, I've just gone to drop over a couple of toilet rolls to our next door neighbour. No word of a lie. Because that's where we are. That's what we're doing. Um, and make sure in the mornings, I would recommend 
make sure you take the rubbish out. Take the rubbish out of your brain every morning. And by that, I mean you wake up every morning and you write all the fear down. Then just challenge what you see. All right? Are you 100% sure that those things you're worried about are true? Are there things you think might happen? Do you have any proof that they will happen? Are they happening today? Just challenge those fears. Write them all down, obviously. You know, honestly, when you write things down, then you get a chance to go, oh, hang on, is that really it? My excellent executive producer, Janine Cooper, she and I have worked together for quite a while now. I think 2007, 2008 New Year's Eve show was the first show we did together. She's a genius of television. But she told me this week, we are crossing the road very carefully. We take a step forward, we look both ways. We wait a day, then we take another step forward, and we look both ways. And that's where we are. And that's where we probably will be as a community for quite a a while now. COVID-19 is highly contagious, as you've obviously heard, but it is not as contagious and it is not as dangerous as panic. I have been in a panicked crowd a number of times, and I've even been in a riot, which we were honestly lucky to escape from. Something that happens to us as humans when we're together in big numbers, it's just odd, man. Like, I guess that's why we like to do things in big numbers, why we like to be in a crowd at the football, at, at a gig, um, at a fun run. You know, I, I adored waiting for a marathon to start and being amongst 40,000 people, all of us there doing the same thing. I found a really interesting quote about this from a, a Frenchman by the name of Gustave Le Bon. In 1895, he wrote in his book, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. Crowds do not reason. They tolerate neither discussion nor contradiction and the suggestion brought to bear on them invade the entire field of their understanding and tend at once to transform themselves into acts. That's exactly the description of what it's like to be in a panicked crowd, and I've been in one. I absolutely know how easy it is to want to give in to panic. I would urge you to just recognise it, understand that that's what it is. Try and breathe through it. Wanting to act against an existential crisis like this is an inescapable feeling. The only thing I would suggest is to try and act, but act in accordance with your values. Are your values to, you only need two packets of pasta, but you want to take 10 and then four more people can't eat because you've got pasta that might just go off before you get to cook it? Probably not. What if you were one of those four other people? Probably wouldn't like it very much. Is that part of your values, to push someone out of the way for a roll of toilet paper? Probably not. Panic means that you act without choice in the matter. And that leaves you in a very narrow space of emotional response. It leaves you without the ability to see reason or assess even if what you're doing will be good in the long term. For me, like I said, I just try to control the things that I can. If I worry about everything else, and it is a lot, because it is a lot, I will just unravel all the hard work that me, my wife and my doctors have done over the last few years. We really only can control the things that we can. It is a very, very, very small list, as David told me. I cannot control other people's social distancing. I cannot control other people's decisions to have dinner parties or other people's decisions to go to the beach or other people's decisions to elbow elderly people out of the way to get a roll of toilet paper. All I can do is look after myself and my family and my colleagues and my neighbours. This is a time of 
becoming a community again. It, it really feels wonderful to talk to my neighbours. I, I actually, I had to... <laughs> um, the reason I went over to give a roll of toilet paper is because a little earlier in the day, in the house behind us, we live in a slightly tight-packed part of the city and the, the houses are a bit older and they're, they're built really close to the boundaries and they're, my neighbour's dog got stuck between their house and the back wall that I share with another building. And so like four of us went around there and essentially had to cut a hole in a fence to get this. This dog was like 16 years old, it's an old dog, but we managed to rescue this dog today, all of us together. And then we kind of got chatting and then we've only got one roll of toilet paper. I've got a few. Come and have some. So yeah, I was a part of rescuing a dog today. And doing that from my neighbour that I've never met, and but this is the, this is what we get to do now. This is what we get to do. We get to be a part of our community, right? Because now I feel connected with the people in that house and that house, and I feel instant. And the people right next door to me, I feel instantly safer. Instantly safer. I'm not alone. You know, I've got all these people around me that I know. I was speaking with a mate about this the other night. Because when I look at all those people, and we're all from very different backgrounds and very different economic places, but we are all in this together. And I was speaking with my buddy about this the other night. We, we were checking in on each other on a phone call, and we really are all in this together. We really, really, really are. It's not like, you know, in the past, like say, for example, if you, if you lost your job and everyone else just goes on with their life as normal, they go and have holidays, they buy a new jet ski, and all you're thinking about is how you're going to put food on the table. But this time around, well, everyone's in this together. We really, we are all in this together. Every one of us, you, me, Lizzo, all of the current and ex-Wiggles, the dancers from Shakira and Beyonce's halftime show, the not happy Jan lady, um, Roy and HG, Hamish and Andy, the girls from that movie, The Breaker Uppers in New Zealand, the YouTube guys who make the slow motion Coke and Mentos videos, my mates, your mates, our husbands, wives, children, dogs, cats, parrots, fish, whatever companion animal you choose to have. We are all in this together. Every single one of us has a role to play in this. And we can choose our path through this and we can choose our path out of this. And that is incredibly powerful because we have control over that. Remember, calm is contagious. People copy what they see. They're just like my little boy wolf. They copy what they see. If they see people panicking, they panic. If they see people modeling calm, they will hopefully model more calm behavior. So let's you and me, let's try to model some calm, considerate behavior. Little things every day mean a lot. And things change so quickly that probably by the time you hear this everything will probably be quite different but already things that we knew was unshakable are suddenly gone and will probably never come back and we really i keep saying to wolfie man you've chosen a really interesting time in history to be born man <laughs> it's all as i said to my buddy the other night and like we're in the water slide all right we, we climbed to the top of the tower and we were waiting a long time before we kind of got the balls up to make the move but now we're, we're in the water slide what the splashdown looks like you know, that's up to us. It is kind of scary. It really is. But all we have to do is be willing to be with this uncertainty today, do our part, and know that it will be different one day. It won't be like this every day. It is going to be okay because it is always okay. We just need to breathe, eat, sleep, and be kind to each other. 
Everything else will work out if we do those things. It will. So let's talk about my guest today. Scott Harrison is the founder and CEO of Charity Water, which he established in 2006. The global water crisis is no joke. There are 663 million people around the world that do not have clean water to drink, water that you and I take for granted. If you're, if you're listening to this, you, you're, you have clean water. That's it. Think about how it would impact your life if you didn't. Think about growing up like that. Think about all the things you would need to do so you could drink water and all the things you wouldn't be able to do because you had to go and get water. That is what Scott has chosen to tackle. It is no mean feat. Since he began, and with the help of more than 1 million donors worldwide, Charity Water has raised more than $400 million and funded more than 38,000 water projects in 28 different countries. They have helped millions and millions of people access safe, clean drinking water. Scott and I met at a conference about 10 years ago, and we have gratefully kept in touch ever since. I couldn't be more than happy to bring you this conversation with him. He is such an inspiring man. Just a note, though, before we get into this conversation. We did record this conversation back in the summertime during the tail end of the bushfire disaster when the air in Sydney still stung your eyeballs and smelled like smoke. Scott was a little ill. He'd come down with a flu. How quickly both of those things have changed in their extraordinary significance. Scott did ask me to hold off on airing this episode until this very week so it would coincide with a bit of a push they're doing around the world with Charity Water. And you can find out more about their extraordinary work at charitywater.org. They are top shelf when it comes to charity. Every single dollar that you donate goes to the work that they're doing. And he explains that business model a little more as we get into the chat. You can become a regular contributor to Charity Water at charitywater.org if you choose. But if times are tight right now, I totally get it. However, if you do have a few spare shekels, you can know they're going where they're supposed to go, which is a wonderful thing in the world of philanthropy. You can find Scott online. He's at Scott Harrison, two hours, one S. And enjoy this conversation from New York City up in G's bedroom, because that was the only place where there was a desk that didn't have tradies in it with Scott Harrison. Hey, buddy. Welcome to Sydney, Scott. <laughs> is, it, is it morning time there? Very. Yeah? Yeah. It's a Tuesday morning, and um, unfortunately, the air smells like smoke, but the air smelled like smoke all summer. It's a, it's a pretty interesting time. Is it getting any better? No. But, you so know, there's, there's- it's a, and this is something, you know, that you can definitely speak to is that when it's a, a, an economy low on the socioeconomic spectrum that's a, affected by something environmental, no one really cares. But when it's a white, wealthy country uh, with cute, fluffy animals on fire, yeah. people kind of look. People care, yeah. But uh, unfortunately, the people in power in our country, I don't know, Scott, it's pretty interesting, but it's, you know, it's something I'd, li- I'd like to talk to you about. Firstly, I'm just, I'm just so yeah. grateful that you had, you had time for this, mate. I'm, you know, I'm really grateful that yeah, you, you made time thanks, for this. Thanks so much for having me on. Mate, I've been a, a big supporter of, of what you've been doing for a long time and to get a chance to speak to the people of Australia about, you know, what it is that you do and, and, and the things that you're learning as you go about the world doing the work you're doing, I think is a, is a, is a really important thing. So I guess, firstly, you know, where is yeah. it that we find you today? 
I'm uh, in our headquarters here in uh, Tribeca, New York City, which is nice for once. I spent a lot of time on the road. Uh, I was in Florida last week. I'm in Boston this week and London on the weekend. Seoul, Korea a couple weeks ago. So it's it's great to be here. I'm here with the team. After you, I'm going to run home and, uh, and see my kids and uh, cook them dinner. Oh, bloody magnificent. Well, I'm not going to keep you uh, I'm not going to keep you any any longer than that cuz uh, I've got two kids and and really when and I'm sure you do the same thing when I'm faced with the grimness of of everything. Sometimes I'm just like, you know what? This moment where this kid's smiling at me, this is all that matters right now. It really is. It really is. It's all I can be with. But also, you know, and I'm sure when you travel around the world and you certainly see where you've deployed some of your projects, you would see that that joy that I get from my family is the same joy that someone gets from their family, whether they live in a mansion or a yurt. It's true. And, and in some ways, it, it even feels uh, less distracted, maybe that joy uh, in a village in Malawi or, or Niger. You know, the, the sense of family, the sense of community is, is pretty profound. Yeah. I would like to just to paint a bit of a picture of people. It's the first time, if people have never, you know, heard of what you do before, I would like it if you would be so kind as to just kind of roll us back. Let's say, I don't know, let's roll, roll us back like five years before you started Charity Water. What was life like for you? Yeah, I was a, a nightclub promoter in New York City, doing lots of cocaine, chasing girls, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. Uh, and you'd find me, you know, at night either at a casino or a strip club. So pretty much as dark and damaged as uh, as one might imagine a human soul could be at the, the depths of depravity. Uh, I had moved to New York City in uh, an act of rebellion against a very conservative Christian upbringing. And my act of rebellion was to go work at 40 nightclubs over a 10-year period. And, uh, you know, all the things that, that come along with that, you know, the, the models, the bottles, the drugs, the drinking, the gambling. And you probably know where this is going. But, you know, one day, 10 years in, I just realized I was emotionally bankrupt. I was spiritually bankrupt. I was morally bankrupt. Uh, I had done nothing for anybody except myself. And that had left me, you know, in a place of emptiness and sort of, you know, moral ruin. And, you know, I had uh, this this kind of epiphany, uh, almost a cathartic moment. I was traveling on a very opulent vacation to South America, and I was with all of the right people. And my girlfriend was in the cover of a fashion magazine at the time. And I drove a BMW, and I had a Rolex watch, and I had a grand piano in my New York City apartment, and I had a Labrador retriever. What more could make a uh, a man happy? And of course, I just realized I needed to do something very different. And it was like almost like the game of musical chairs where the music stopped. And for the first time in a decade, I had nowhere to sit. And I was faced with much more existential questions of what might go in my tombstone and what uh, what might you know my legacy be. And I realized that it certainly wouldn't be profound. You know, here lies a man who got a million people drunk, maybe. <laughs> oh, man. So that was that was where I was, uh, yeah, five years before it started. Or so, so no, no, that's, um, but but just just to stop just to stop there for a second. You know, you've just described pretty much everyone's ideal Instagram feed. You know, you've described, hey, I'm in this club. Hey, I've you know I've got this girlfriend or or boyfriend on the cover of a magazine. Hey, I've got this bottle. Look at my watch. Look at my car. I'm on a plane. Look where we're going. And you're telling me, Scott Harrison, that that didn't fill the hole? 
I don't think it fills the hole for anyone, my friend, <laughs> including someone listening who may actually have any of those things. Um, I mean, I think that's uh, uh, certainly a conversation that we're seeing a lot more uh, in our society today about these double lives and the growing sense of anxiety or depression or loneliness as we all become more connected and spend more time in alternate worlds, other people's worlds. Uh, on social media or so. So this was well before any of that. Yeah. You know, you would see me in the club if you were in the club. That was about it. <laughs> yeah. But the idea that all these things that people in a music video or, or, you know, some sort of Instagram influencer is telling you, hey, I've got this thing. How great's life now? I've got this thing. Look, I can tell what time it is in Switzerland because I've got this watch. That ultimately that doesn't do anything. No, because there's no sense of purpose. And... Uh. Look, I think uh, it, it was – I was almost enslaved to the selfishness and the more you want for yourself, the more you want from yourself. And then maybe you don't realize this, but I certainly didn't realize this on the little treadmill. And it'll never be enough. Someone always has more. Someone always has a better watch, bro. That'll tell time in Switzerland and Vienna, Austria. You know, Someone's always got a, a, better, a better car. Um, somebody's got a plane. And you don't. You got a couple of vacation houses. They have more. And I think it's just this insatiable desire for more that leaves so many. It certainly left. I can only really speak for myself. Left me, you know, spent and sad and empty and numb. Really just, just completely numb after this. So when did you find the way out? You get off this plane in South America. I guess you're not going to enjoy that vacation very much. <laughs> Uh, it was like the veil was lifted on this vacation and I saw things for what they were and I saw that other people weren't really happy either, that we were all just playing this game. And, uh, you know, I saw a lot of wreckage. I mean, in the club business, you know, you, you, you know, you got these, you know, 50, 60 year old rich guys who are dating 20 year old girls and <laughs> they're dating girls younger than their daughters. Oh God. Their daughters don't speak to them because there's just, you know, wreckage everywhere. And I don't know, I, th I think I saw the product maybe for, for what it was. And I asked myself the question, what might the exact opposite of my life look like? And, and I think there was this realization that a pivot was not needed. A small course correction was not needed. Uh, a radical, extreme, walk in the other direction change was, was needed. And I would also need to change my environment uh, drastically. And the, the only idea that really came into my head at that time was, what if I volunteered for a humanitarian aid organization for one year? Um, there was this kind of biblical concept I've been brought up with of a tithe where you give 10% away. Well, I was thinking of that in time. I'd selfishly wasted 10 years. What if I gave one of those years back in service to others and see where that took me? And, you know, my big idea was turned into action when I volunteered or, or put in volunteer applications at some famous charities I'd heard of. So the equivalent of, you know, the uh, World Vision and Doctors Without Borders and United Nations World Food Program. And, of course, none of these charities wanted a club rat. So I was denied by 10 or so organizations who just didn't know what to do with me, what box they, they would be able to put me into. So that was a really frustrating moment. You know, imagine kind of getting yourself to the point where you're ready to give, you're ready to serve, and then nobody wants you to. So I was very fortunate that one organization said, hey, look, if you pay us $500 every month, 
And if you're willing to go live in post-war Liberia, West Africa, a country that's just come out of a 14-year civil war, then you can volunteer. And it was just perfectly opposite. You know, not only was I going for free, it was actually going to cost me money. I was going to have to pay for the pleasure of volunteering. And uh, I signed up to be a volunteer photojournalist on that trip. And everything changed for me. Everything changed. What did you see that had the biggest impact? Was it that happiness we were speaking about earlier? Was it seeing people who had literally nothing and seeing that level of happiness they had? Yeah, it was that. It was a shock and horror of extreme poverty up close and personal. Imagine going from relative opulence or a place where water is sold for $10 a bottle in a nightclub and not even opened, or a bottle of champagne is sold for a thousand, you know, or a watch goes for $30,000. And then being immersed in a country where 14 years of war has ravaged the place, where there's no electricity in the country, there's no running water in the country, there's no sewage system in the country, and there's one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. One doctor for every 50,000 people. Uh, but there's no place for the doctors to actually work because none of the hospitals have electricity. So I just saw extreme, extreme poverty. I spent time in leprosy colonies. I saw people drinking from swamps and rivers and kids getting sick from disease, dirty water. And myriad conditions of extreme poverty that were in just such contrast to my previous life. And the good thing is I was there with these amazing humanitarian doctors and surgeons who were there to meet these needs. So I was also seeing problems getting solved. I was seeing the needs being met in the most tangible ways. I was seeing children restored to health because we had brought doctors, we had brought medical facilities, we had brought clean drinking water into villages. And I just was so taken by the transformative work of you know improving human life, of ending needless suffering, that the year turned into two years. So I'd signed up for a year, I wound up staying for two. And when I eventually came back to New York City at 30 years old, after this time, there was no going back to the former life. I was going to do this kind of work for the rest of my life, God willing, you know, if I was, if I was able. And I had my issue because of all the things that I'd seen, there was just something about dirty water, about human beings, about children drinking dirty water that just didn't sit right with me. And I thought, you know, this would be the thing I would work on. To talk about that for a minute, you know, here in, uh, here in Sydney, we, uh, they're very careful about the messaging. They're like, one of the worst droughts Sydney's ever seen. Well, no, it's just, this is the weather now. It just doesn't rain like it used to, and it won't again. And so the way we use water is radically shifting in the city and people are trying to deal with it. You know, right now, we've got all these buckets out the back. We've got a gray water hose that when we wash our laundry, 68 litres comes out of our machine, right? And we put it on the garden, right? And the amount of water that goes into the buckets when we shower is just, holy shit, how much water are we, are we using here? Can you tell me, in your experience out in the field, how much water is enough to really transform someone's life a day? You know, we're trying to get people 20 litres a day. There's a, a UN sphere standard. Many people are using far less than that. 
three liters a day, five liters a day. So I don't know if people are familiar with these images of the yellow jerry can, kind of the fuel can that holds five gallons or 20 liters. It weighs 40 pounds. That is the amount of water we're trying to get a human being at the very most basic level to use for cooking, for drinking, for cleaning, for washing the clothes. Now, for us, that's two toilet flushes. God damn it. You know, so you think about how much water we use. In America, we would use about 30 times that amount. A day. A day, every day, yeah. Sorry, I'm just taking that in. <laughs> the wastefulness of it is just profound when you speak about it like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, to, to just give you a sense of the, the global landscape when it comes to this issue. So as we you know, sit here chatting, a tenth of the planet is drinking dirty, unsafe, contaminated water. It's about 663 million people globally are drinking dirty water. So one out of every 10 human beings alive and 82% of them live in rural areas, in remote farming kind of communities, not in the cities and the towns. And maybe the frustrating thing is that we know how to solve this problem. So there's not a single human being that should be drinking dirty water. It's not like, you know, maybe people with pancreatic cancer right now, and we're just not sure what to do about it. You know, that we don't have the immunotherapy that really works. And there's plenty of diseases out there that we just don't know how to cure yet. Water is a curable disease in its entirety. So it's not a single person that we can't bring from dirty water to clean water. Now, we haven't created the will to do it, the global will. We haven't created the awareness. We haven't allocated the, the capital to help the planet get clean water, but we know how to do it. So that's what Charity Water has been doing for 13 years. So when I came back from Africa, I wound up you know, spending what's now the last 13 years of my life fighting for clean water for all, by all means possible. And you know, we've been able to now help about 11 million people get water out of the 660 million. So still so much work left to be done. 660 I'm one person with a Rolodex that's useless now because there's no one in the, my club life that I want to talk to anymore. How do you face such an overwhelming problem, Scott? You just start with one. I mean, I think you'll hear this from anybody working on any daunting issue. You start with one community that needs help, and then you move on to the next, and then you move on to the next. And we've really taken that one-by-one -one approach, and now we've helped 50,000 communities across 29 countries. Because the one becomes two, becomes five, becomes 10, becomes 50, and movements uh, grow. So I think 
we try to just focus on the next person, the next, even today, you know, now we're at a scale where this year we just helped 1.54 million people get clean water. It's stadiums and stadiums full of people whose lives we've changed, but we don't really focus on the big numbers. We just focus on the task ahead. Who's next? Who's out there waiting for us to help? Because this is a, when you consider the the revolution, not evolution, revolution required in the modern economies of the world to adapt to uh, net carbon emissions. It's so overwhelming, like we can't even start. We don't even know what to do. But what you're saying is like you just take the first bite and then you take the next one. Yeah, that's right. You know, so Charity Water's mission is, has been very simple. Let's bring clean water to everybody in need. And I think what's made us uh, maybe a little unique is we've just reached out to everyday people to do that. So instead of reaching out to governments or big corporations really as our strategy, we just went to people and said, look, could you give 30 bucks? Could you give $40? Could you give $10? Uh, we reached out to children and said, you know, maybe you could do a lemonade stand. Could you help? And, you know, I think even, even Australia is seeing now the impact when you get a lot of people to care about something right? All of those micro donations can actually add up, maybe not to quite what's needed, but certainly to, to huge, huge amounts of money, right? Huge amounts of capital. Those donations represent people who are thinking about it. And those people vote with their dollars every day. And those people also vote at election booths every three or four years. So it's not just that money, Scott, it's changing minds at the same time across a community. Yeah, I agree. And that's hard. You know, it's hard because it, with our issue, you know, it, it, with, with just, you know, your, your issue, what we were talking about earlier, I mean, people turn on the news and they see the fires, right? They see this need. When do you turn on the news and see a woman in Malawi walking eight hours to give her child diseased water and then holding her child of diarrhea in her arms and watching her child die? The water crisis doesn't make the news in the same way that even here in America, you know, we had this town that had dirty water and nine people died over a couple of years. I mean, jumbo jets are going down every day around the world full of people, of kids dying of bad water. But they're, you know, they were born in Somalia. They were born in Sudan. They were born in West Africa or India or Southeast Asia. So that's really our job is to bring this issue to light, is to get everyday people to care about it, to realize that wow, the money actually makes a difference, that we can help people, that we can move a human being or a family from dirty water to clean water w with a very small amount of money and to prove those results. What, what's the return on that? I mean, I'm, I can only imagine that if your problem for the day is I don't have water, then that's the only thing you're doing that day. You're not going to school. You're not going to work. You're not trying to find any status or making your life any better than it is like, all we've got to do is drink today. Once water's taken care of, what's the follow-on economic and, and social impact of when you bring water to a community? Yeah, it's a great question. So it makes a huge impact on women and girls. So culturally throughout the world, it is the role of the women and the girls to go fetch the water. And just to give an example, you know, 40 billion hours will be wasted in Africa every year just by women and girls getting water. And by the way, this isn't a Monday through Friday gig. You know, you don't get your Saturdays and Sundays off or you don't drink water and you're dehydrated. So what you have is, the, is an incredible story of transformation, not just around turning dirty water to clean. I mean, you can go on our website and see pictures that will just shock you of, of brown, viscous water, water that looks more like chocolate milk. 
and children drinking it. So you, you not only get the health benefits of turning dirty water into clean water, you also get this time restored benefit. And imagine, you know, being a mother walking seven hours a day, seven days a week, and then all of a sudden you have 49 free hours back every week. It's more than a work week. What would you do with that? Well, many women will start businesses. They'll sell things at the market. They'll sell peanuts or rice. They'll earn an income. They'll build bricks. They'll spend more time with their kids, leading their families forward. So you get these kind of stories of family and community transformation when that time is reclaimed, time not wasted, time not spent getting diseased, sick water. And I'm sure that also offers an amount of stability to a community when you, you talked about Liberia before, if a, a community goes without whatever commodity it is for long enough, they'll get upset and turn itself inside out. When that stability comes, and it must have a political impact as well. Yeah, I mean, I think water is water is just such a basic need. It's like the basic building block of human flourishing, right? Without water, what have you got? I mean, you know, you all know this. We can we can go a very long time uh, without eating. I was reading the other day about somebody who fasted food for a year, but you go a couple of days and you're dead without water. Yeah. So it's a really, really important element of life that unfortunately is just not available, at least in a clean form, for a tenth of the planet because of the conditions of poverty they were born into. So yeah, you know, it's we have the SDGs of the UN, the Sustainable Development Goals, and water has its own goal. It's goal number six. But but we do a really, I, I think, a, a pretty compelling job of saying, look, by doing goal number six, by doing water, you're actually impacting goal number five, gender equality, right? Empowering women and girls. You're impacting goal number four, which is health and well-being. You're impacting goal number three, which is access to education. And then obviously you're impacting goal number one, which is zero poverty. So it's kind of this package. When you when you go to these communities, I mean, most of my listeners are in Australia, which is a country where most of the people live on the very, very, very edges. It's an island, a uh, very big one. And the middle part of the country is, is very, very dry. So the water, if it's not from a river, which it isn't at the moment, the rivers are dry, the water's a long, 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 long way away. In the communities that you're working in, is the water similarly far away? How do you turn the water from muddy, viscous chocolate milk dirt to, to clean? Yeah, so we have a, a solution agnostic approach. We do about 13 different things in communities around the world. Uh, one of the things we do, we can drill for water. Yeah. So we can go and find clean groundwater underneath the community. And I'll tell you, I mean, this is a terrible irony to realize that often you've got 300 people dying walking six, seven hours to a dirty river, and they're living on top of the resource that could save their lives and the lives of their children. So uh, that's one thing we do. It costs about $12,000 to drill a well for you know a few hundred people. Often we can build rainwater harvesting systems. So in Cambodia or in Rajasthan, India, for example, uh, in the Thar Desert, it's 120 degrees Fahrenheit. It's extraordinarily hot. And it's, we can't drill because the water table is just so far down. But what we can do is capture that monsoon rain for a month and store a year's worth of water underground in a cistern. And then effectively allowing a family to live off the grid and pump clean groundwater right next to their house. In Cambodia, we uh, now have the, the largest bio sand filter program in the world. And, and think of that as a giant filter where we'll go in into a, a region where there's water everywhere, 
but it's dirty. And you pour the dirty water through filters and then it comes out clean. Maybe not so dissimilar from the ones that you have in your refrigerator. Our water is not even dirty, right? Yeah. So I'm guessing you are, you know, essentially trying to install systems that require very little, if any, maintenance, something non-mechanical, something that's pretty simple to run, something that you can just kind of leave behind and say, all right, we're out. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So these communities aren't then beholden or dependent that you keep coming back. That's right. Yeah. We, we want that. We want to set these communities up to be sustainable. So that's a, that's a big effort, you know, for the organization is establishing tariffs. So we want everybody to pay a little bit for that well to maintain it so that when the well breaks, there is money. The community has a, has a savings and loan that's managed. And, you know, we know who's actually in charge of that, um, who will go and take out that money and go hire the well driller. So there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. There's certainly a lot of complexity, but in some ways it's very simple. You know, you go in and you say, oh, great, we know what the solution is here, um, but it costs $10,000 and everybody's living on a dollar a day. So they don't have the $10,000 and we're able to work with local partners to provide that. That's the other thing I'd say about the organization, a couple things about our business model. One, for 13 years now, we've used 100% of all donations to directly fund these water projects and get people clean water. So all of the overhead, whether it's my salary or the 100 people who work in New York, the headquarters, the office, the toner for the Epson copy machine, all of that is paid for separately from about 100 families who don't mind paying those gross overhead costs so that 100% of every lemonade stand of every $10, $100 can go directly to the field and be tracked. So that two bank account model has been really instrumental in Charity Water's success. We hear many times that people have made their first donation to a charity through us because they actually know where their money is going to go. Uh, and they believe that they believe that it's going to have an impact. The second thing is that we, we're big believers that for this work to be sustainable, it has to be led by the locals in each of these countries. So rather than send expats you know, around Africa or India or Asia, we, we go and find the locals who are already doing this work and then we grow their work. We grow their local capacity. We grow their impact. So we've got about 100 people here in New York full time, but we have over 1,200 people around the world that are locals in each of these countries that are actually the ones doing the work and the ones actually getting the credit. That's also important because that then shows, and I see, you know, the the idea of the, and I'm just, you know, going to say it out loud. You can disagree with me if you like, and I'm, you know, I'm not having a problem if you do. You know, I'm the white person coming in to save you from your peril. That, exactly. That colonialism caused. And here we are, you know, versus, you know, here's a person. I know him. He went to school with my granddad, and now he's here with a drilling rig. Great. Yep. You know, it changes the idea of why would I use this resource? Well, I think what, what the idea with that is if, if the outsider is the one that came in and built the well, then when the well breaks, oh, well, they're going to come back and fix their well. Yeah. There's not that sense of, of ownership. So, yeah. yeah, that's one of the things I'm just so proud about the organization and the methodology is it is really the locals who are getting the credit. I mean, we've invested now close to $100 million in Ethiopia, and so many of those communities have never heard of Charity Water or even the donor. Uh, but they know and celebrate the local organization who's been working on clean water for 40 years, just didn't have the resources, didn't have that money at scale, didn't have the drilling rigs. So we, we, we really are intentional about taking a back seat and, you know, no, certainly no hero worship here. And if anything, we celebrate our local partners as the hero, the local community members as the hero. The two bank account model, having done a, a fair bit of work in, in charities myself, the two bank account model is 
probably as groundbreaking. No pun intended. Probably as groundbreaking. I like that. I like that. Probably as groundbreaking because people may not realise that in some cases. I, I've, I've you know worked on a, on a story about this a couple of years ago that in some charities a dollar of what you give like it's twenty one cents or seventeen cents goes to the thing you're giving. Everything else is the rent and the CEO's wage because you want a charity that works, so you need to pay market rate for someone who can actually do the CEO job. So you know you pay peanuts to get monkeys. Yeah. You got to pay someone what they're worth. You know. You live in New York City, not a cheap place to rent a house. You've got a hundred employees. That's expensive. That wages that's a lot. Yeah. You know, you're not asking people to live on the bones of their ass. You know, they you want people and the best people, you've got to pay the what the best people are worth. Well, I want the very best people. Yeah. I'm, I want to compete with Google and Facebook. Exactly. So the way that we've done that is, you know, we went to a hundred people and we said, we're gonna make this your problem. Your business leaders, you've built Facebook or Twitter or Spotify. You know uh, the importance of, of of recruiting the best talent, of being in a city where you can actually get the best talent to actually come to work. And we made it, we made overhead the problem of a hundred people. So more than a million people have this opportunity, you know, to give in a pure way and, and growing. I remember when like you were talking about growth before starting one community at a time. I remember early on when you acquired your first drilling rig. And I was just like, we've got one. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. What was that day like for you when you now had, you know, well, we we own our own one now. Here we go. Yeah, well, we we immediately gifted it, so we don't own it. We right. we owned it for about a second, and then we gave it to our local partner, right, under a contract saying they've got to drill wells exclusively for us for the next two decades, as long yeah. as we have the money. Yeah. Um, and I'm proud to say that we actually, it's three rigs now, or maybe four, and those rigs are, are working perfectly. They do about 90 communities every single year. One of the things I loved about that is that you had used the technology available at the time. This is about 10 years ago, I think, man. Yeah. You used the technology available at the time to go, hey, there's a GPS tracker on it. So if you donate, you can see yeah. exactly where we are drilling today with your money. And when you when you are you know in the charity, sorry, that's my dogs being idiots downstairs. No problem. When, when you are in the charity game, the charity days of when I was a young man are kind of gone. You know, you send your $10 off to World Vision and you might get a postcard once a year, but that's it. I'm guessing donors are wanting a lot more back for their money these days. I think they want to trust. Yeah, I mean, this idea of being able to see your impact has, has been a, a big competitive advantage for us because we, we think like that. We're always looking to connect donors to stories, to impact. But people want to trust. They want to believe. And I think they're often so let down you know, when they find things aren't as they seem. So I think we're surprised often at how few people actually go and look at the photos and the GPS coordinates on the website, but it's there and every single one is there and people know and believe that they're there. When you when you look ahead and, and you would have seen it over the last 13 years that you've been working, you've seen the weather change. You've, you've obviously looked very carefully at rainfall and the weather that, that's coming. When you look at that, what are your thoughts for some of, you know, for, for us all, to be honest, Scott? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're not experts on, on climate change. I think we are seeing it impact many of the areas where we work. Uh, many of our partners, we're encouraging them to dig in to talk about water table preservation. You know, we want to make sure that when we drill a well, it doesn't go dry. Uh, often that could be replenishing the aquifer, uh, terracing mountains. So when it rains, you know, the topsoil is not rushing down 
I think it's just going to pose more and more challenges for organizations like us going forward and more and more challenges for wealthier nations, you know, middle, middle income nations and, and wealthy nations as, as we all try to manage this precious resource called water. Yeah. You are, you're at the forefront of something that's probably going to be the most valuable thing on, on the planet if it isn't already. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was just doing a, a presentation recently and someone pulled a Google search graph for water crisis. And guess what? It's up and to the right. And it starts about seven years ago. And it just grows every single year. More and more people searching about water, interested in water. Uh, the Economist did a full-page special edition called Thirsty Planet. So I think you, you are going to see an increased energy around this issue as more and more people realize, hey, maybe this isn't a resource we should take for granted. Hmm. And maybe we, we really should both be better stewards of water, but also let's make sure that humans have it. Let's make sure that people are not dying of dirty, disgusting water. You know, I was with a woman in Niger uh, a few years back, and she was standing next to this disgusting, brown, viscous water hole, and she told me that eight of her children died. So oh. she buried eight children to survive. So I'm sure there's mothers listening. You know, I, I'm I'm a dad to, to two young kids. I mean, I can't imagine the pain of losing one child, let alone eight, from preventable causes. And and she was living on top of an aquifer of clean water. All we had to do was drill a well. Now she's drinking clean water today, but it was too late for eight children. So that kind of stuff, you know, makes you want to uh, to go faster and 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 help more people. The great irony of our planet is we gave it the wrong name because there's more water on it than there is Earth. And then the old sailor on a, after a shipwreck sitting on the island, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Where does desal play a role as we all move forward into the future, Scott? Sure. I mean, desal is complicated. It is energy intensive. It is waste intensive. You've got to push about two gallons through a desal unit to get one gallon. And it's got big environmental impacts. What do you do with the brine? What do you do with all that waste? Well, a lot of people are just dumping it back into the ocean in concentrated forms. And we don't really know how that's going to affect the marine life in the oceans. You know, imagine just dumping tons and tons of highly concentrated salt in an area. The other thing is it's expensive. So it's not a solution for the poor. You know, none of the people that we're talking about serving will be served through desal at these prices. It is working well for rich nations. If you've got the money to go build a couple hundred million dollar desal plant and pay for the energy to run it, whether it's nuclear or coal or you can get clean water out. But, you know, that's the thing about the water crisis. There's no silver bullet. There's no one size fits all solution to this. You know, we need more and more people, I think, looking for really scrappy, innovative ideas and then just using some of the time-tested ways to provide clean water. I mean, I live in New York City. My friends will go buy a house up in the country two hours drive north and they'll just drill a well in their backyard and they'll put their little country house and their nuclear family of three on a well. So, you know, we're, we're still doing this today and that's a perfectly good solution. They're not going to drain that well. And that's the well that gets replenished when the rain falls. Yeah, absolutely. The, the water seeping down through the earth to filter it. Yeah. And then yep. 
it all sits in this kind of concentrated form together. When you're down in our neck of the woods, when you're down in the in the Pacific Islands, or you're you know you're down in Southern Asia, this is our immediate neighbourhood. What are the effects you see? We've talked a bit about Africa. What are the effects you see of, of of life with not access to clean water down here? Yeah, more more prevalence of water. So you know, Cambodia is a place I'm really familiar with. There's just water everywhere. Bangladesh has a too much water mm. problem, um, but it's dirty. So there we're really focusing less on eliminating that seven-hour walk, mm. you know, in an, in an arid environment. And how do we take the water that might be right next to your place in a puddle or an open well that you only dug a few feet? And how do we make that water clean? Mm. So, you know, the bio sand filter is a really interesting thing to learn about online. It's kind of this high science, low technology invented by a, a guy in Calgary many years ago. And for about $65, we can you know, build a, effectively a giant Brita unit that takes this dirty Cambodian surface water and turns it clean for the cost of, you know, $15 a person or so. That's extraordinary. <laughs> That's yeah. This is obviously an extraordinarily large task that you've, you've set yourself. Do you ever wake up with the overwhelms? Do you ever wake up with, my God, this is too big? And how do you deal with that? I think I'm an optimist, which helps. And, I, and I'm trying to just focus on the progress, the accomplishments. Going to the field has really helped me stay optimistic because I get to visit many of the places that didn't have water and then I get to go back to them and see the transformation. I don't know. I mean, we've helped 11 million people now. That feels like a drop in the bucket. Sorry for the, the pun. Oh, but, no, Doug, go for it as much as you like. <laughs> but it's, it, it's also 500 Madison Square Gardens full Holy, of clean water. Good God. You know, it's more people than live in New York City and the boroughs. So it also kind of is this big impact as well. So you have, and, and certainly important in the lives of all 11 million people. And, you know, every once in a while I have this moment, I'll come back from a country and I'll say, man, if it was, if all the years work and hardship and struggles it would have been worth it for this one family that I met just to, to help them, to provide them with life's most basic needs. So, you know, you have these moments of encouragement and then you just, you focus on the next million people, you know, the next, well, right now we're, we, we bit off a chunk of the next 25 million people. So 10 million behind us, let's get the next 25 and then let's look in the rearview mirror when we're at 35 million people, about 5% of the global problem, and figure out how, how it'll go faster. And that next 25 million people, you know, it's going to cost $1.2 billion. So I'm going to need a lot of, lot, of, lot of support, a lot of everyday people just stepping up. I guess, you know, if you're living, living in suburban Australia, you've never thought that water shortage is a problem. I mean, right now your lawn might be going brown because you can't do any sprinklers yeah. and you, you can't hose right now. So that might be an impact on you, but you're still flushing your toilet. All five people in your family are flushing the toilet 20 times a day. Yeah, and, and you're drinking clean water. Yeah, you're flushing drinkable water after your poo, you know, then down it goes. Why would a person in, in a rich country like this one, like in America, why should they care about flushing clean water down after their poo? Why should they care about conserving water? Well, that's a great question. And the reality is that unfortunately, you know, flushing the toilet less or brushing your teeth for a shorter period of time doesn't help the 600 million people around the world. So I'm a big fan of any conservation effort, uh, really, as we take care of our own resource wherever we're living. But the deeper question there is why should someone in Australia care about someone in Africa or Asia or India? And I think that is the challenge of organizations like ours. You know, maybe, maybe homelessness is around you or unemployment or cancer, you know, has touched your family in a powerful way. 
probably nobody listening to this has lost a child to dysentery or has seen a loved one go blind with trachoma because they used a swamp to wash their face. So it's really our job to tell stories of people just like us with the same hopes and dreams for our children to grow up and thrive and get a good education and you know, make a positive impact on the world and help those around them to just say, well, hey, there's this 10% of the world and they were born at a severe disadvantage. And you and I didn't do anything to be born in you know, our middle class environment and you've never had to drink dirty water in your entire life. I haven't either. I go to Africa, I can afford bottled water. I can afford a filter, right? But 10% of the world was not fortunate and, and they and their kids were born into these situations. And we can use our position of influence and affluence, of relative affluence. I mean, some of, one of the amazing things about charity waters, we have poor people that are giving. I mean, people will tell me, you know, I'm giving and I, I had to cancel HBO to give. You know, I canceled Netflix, but I, I just felt like I needed to give people clean water. We have people in their 90s giving $10 a month from their pension, giving it at high sacrifice, but believing in clean water. So it's our job to invite people to reject the paralyzing apathy that would be so easy to succumb to with any of these global issues and say, wow, I could do something. Our biggest kind of engagement now is, is a new giving community called The Spring, and we said, look, Netflix, Spotify, Dropbox, and all these companies that are asking people to just buy their product each and every month. And there's a value exchange, right? You, you pay Netflix and you get movies or new content. So we wanted to create a monthly giving program where 100% of the value would be passed on to the poorest people in the world who needed access to clean water. It may be more valuable than movies or cloud storage. <laughs> and that community now, the spring is now made up of people from 120 countries. And it's allowing us to grow. And, you know, again, it costs us $40 a month to give someone clean water. So we have a bunch of people that are giving 40 bucks a month. We have other people that are giving $20 a month. They say, look, I can help a human every two months. Some people are giving 10 a month, saying, you know, I can help four people a year or three people a year and get water. So really, it's been about growing this community, engaging with people, reporting back to them on what we're doing with their money. So my only ask, people could check out thespring.com, watch some of the videos, just learn a little bit more about the issue. And it's a simple way to kind of help in the background. And sure, you want to engage a little more, but a lot of people in the world could do 10, 20, 30, 40 a month without it making a dent in their life or lifestyle, but it making a huge dent in someone else's lifestyle. Yeah, you can pay the extra money to get the Spotify family so when your kid's listening to music in the car, you don't have to sit through the ads. But, yeah. you know, you're giving someone else's kid water for a year. Personally, I think it's an extraordinary initiative. And, I'm, and I know you're a member as well. So damn straight I am. I thought it was a really great thing to be thank a part so of. Much. I was right into it, man. So you've got to go home and make dinner for your children and be with your family tonight. But you mentioned before, and I, I just wanted to kind of back over it once again, People might think, oh, someone in West Africa, I've got nothing in common with that person. Someone in Cambodia, I've got nothing in common with that person. They don't even know what Netflix is. What's the same thing about what you're going home to? What is the same things that your affluent, clean water, electrified, heat home, safe home, groceries on the shelf all the time life, and this person yeah. who, who lives in a hut, um, wherever in the world they be, what are the same things in your homes? 
you know, my, my whole family just came down with the flu over the last week. It's winter in New York and, you know, my son brought it home from kindergarten and then it's spread to the rest of us. You know, for the last week, we've just wanted to be healthy. And we've had the medicine and the doctor's visits and I've got the digital thermometer that I don't even have to, you know, I just get near my kids' foreheads and it gives me a digital readout. I've got the Advil or the Tylenol to bring that fever down immediately, right? So there's just this kind of sense that everything's going to be okay. I want my children to be healthy. I want them to be happy. I want them to be kind. I want them to play well with their friends. I want them to uh, get a great education and, you know, live moral lives. The people that I meet in Africa or India or Asia, they want the same things. But often, I'll just give you an example, like my kid is not going to die of diarrhea, but yet 4,000 kids today are going to die of diarrhea. My kid gets diarrhea. I go to the drugstore and I buy that blue syrupy electrolyte mix water thing. And I rehydrate my child with clean water and minerals. But if you're living in one of these areas in a 10th of the world, there's no drugstore to go to. And unfortunately, you can't even give your kid clean water to get them well. You have to go back to the swamp to give your kids. So you're literally giving your child the same death. You're giving them potential death at any moment. So the, the thing that made them sick in the first place, you're continuing to sicken your child. And you know it, but it's all you have. And if you don't give your kid water, then they die anyway. So, so many moms are holding their children, watching a, a child die of dehydration, literally shrivel up because they can't keep the fluid in their body. And, you know, diarrhea for us is a nuisance. You know, we flush the toilet a little more, right? I guess, you know, we, we, we waste a little more water during that. So I think, look, it's just, I don't like the guilt and shame often that's, that's around charity. You know, if you think about the first three letters of fundraising, it actually spells the word fun. It's not guilt raising, have to raising, shame raising, shame on you. It's a blessing and an honor to be able to reach into our pockets, to reach into our relative affluence and improve the lives of others and end needless suffering. And you could do that with charity water, with water. You could do it in your local community. In fact, you should be doing it in your local community, meeting the needs of those around you. You could do it with global issues like water or hunger or a justice issue. You know, kids that shouldn't be chained to beds, go find an organization if that's your thing and say, you know, no child should be, you know, a slave to anyone else. But it's this beautiful blessing we can you know, we, we have the opportunity to make our money greater than, than ourselves and live vicariously through great organizations doing great work that are out there humbly improving people's lives. And it takes money to do that. And it takes effort to do that. Scott, you are such an extraordinary human and I couldn't be more grateful to have spent this time with you today, man. Thanks for coming on the show, brother. Thanks for having me on and thanks for your years of, uh, of personal support. I know uh, I know you go way, way, way back with Charity Water. We were just an idea when you started supporting us. So thanks for the loyalty. Mate, I'm, I'm bloody grateful that I can. Have a beautiful night with your family, man. So good to see you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. So there you go. That's Scott Harrison. Uh, you can find Scott online. He's at Scott Harrison, two R's, one S. You can also um, see more about the work that they do and uh, check out some of They do some, have some really extraordinary video content to explain a little bit more about their work at um, charitywater.org. Massive thank you to all of the team that helped me make the show today. Andy Ma, Rachel Barrett, Hayley Van Spanier, 
Lauren Miller, G for lending me her room after she went to school so I could do that. That was a, quite an early Skype call from New York City to get that done. Uh, remember, remember, calm is contagious. Calm is contagious. So go spread some calm. Yeah. Practice good news hygiene. Wash your hands, but also wash your hair. Don't be in the depths of like checking the news all the time for the latest frightening thing. Just check it and then control the things you can. If something really, really, if someone, if they close the schools, they probably have already. If they close the schools, someone will tell you, all right? You don't have to see the news every single day. You know the things you need to do. You know you need to wash your hands. You know you need to stay one and a half metres away from people. You know you need to work from home if you can. You know you need to not panic, stay calm. You know that if you are sick, stay home. You know these things. Nothing else is going to change for a little while. And if it does, you'll find out. If you need to take a break from the news, don't worry. You'll figure it out. I recommend that, by the way. <laughs> Keep breathing. Keep breathing. Never forget, you're here. I'm here. We're all here. All right, let's talk again on Friday. Probably be a very different scene by then. But what? We'll have lots to talk about. Uh, if you need me at all, send me an email. Send us your email at gmail.com. That's where you can find me. Um, yeah. Do your best, team. We're all here together. I'm here if you need me. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things, yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.